Uh, Let me set the story up for you. It's the 8th century BC in the kingdom of Israel and Ahab is setting up a diplomatic marriage with one of the daughters of the princess, uh, the princess uh, in, um, in Sidon. And, and this is going to be a diplomatic marriage, as often happens between uh, countries. And so in the 8th century, King Ahab has uh, entered into a marriage with a princess called uh, Jezebel, a princess from Sidon. And as they entered into their marriage, uh, they went on a some systematic campaign to turn Israel into a religiously pluralistic society. Uh, What Jezebel did is she brought 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of the god Asherah. Baal and Asherah were nature gods. They were fertility gods. And they went on a root and branch reformation and a systematic renewal top to bottom of the entire religious political apparatus in the kingdom of Israel. She brought them over. She put them on government salaries and then she sent them to work in Israel. Now, up to this point in Israel, the Israelites had been tempted by the surrounding nations to forsake the true God and to follow idols, to bow down and worship gods. But this is the very first time in the history of Israel where now you had the power structure of Israel itself, the king and the queen, the government, the public service, the religious apparatus going on a systematic campaign to cut off the God of Israel, to cut out the God of Israel and to codify the worship of idols. And they had great success in their project, except for one guy. And his name was Elijah. Elijah was the last man standing, which means that this was a very dramatic point in the history of Israel. All the promises that God had made to Abraham, I will bless you, I will turn you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless through you. All the nations of the world will be blessed. All those wonderful grand promises of God are now hanging by a thread through this one man, the prophet Elijah. So in verse 1, which we didn't read, but you can see in front of you, uh, Elijah goes up to Ahab and he says to Ahab, God is sending a famine, no rain, not even any dew, because I say so, and until I say not. Now, this is what you call going for the jugular. Remember what I said, Baal and Asherah were nature gods. They were fertility gods. In other words, they were the ones who, if you did what they said, they would make it rain. So what's going on here? Why does Elijah say to Ahab, no rain? Well, if Baal can't produce in the area of his expertise, in his specialty, his reputation will suffer a shattering blow. Baal's deity will shrivel up even as the cracks in the ground get wider and wider. It's spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know if you remember that James, the brother of Jesus, he he talks about this story, the prophet Elijah, in James chapter 5. In verse 17, it says, Elijah was a human being just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. So, Have you ever read that? Why on earth would someone pray for no rain? 
Uh, One commentator points out that the threat of no rain was dire indeed, since rain was crucial for Palestinian agricultural prosperity. In clear contrast to the lands of Egypt and Mesopotamia, where great big rivers used to irrigate the land. Why is he praying for no rain? Well, because the drought proved that Baal, the god of the rain, was utterly powerless before the Lord. I wonder when was the last time you prayed that the false idols and ideologies of our culture would be utterly exposed? When was the last time you prayed for that? This is what Elijah is praying. That the idols that people worship, trust in, believe in, hope in, would fail so that they would, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what Elijah wants the Israelites to do, to turn away from idols. What's the most populated worship space on a Sunday morning in Cottesloe? The beach. Worshipping the sun. And the sand. Elijah prays for no rain so that people would see that these gods are helpless when it comes to stage four cancer, when it comes to a broken marriage, when it comes to the mental health crisis. Elijah's praying that the idols would be exposed so that people would turn away from idols to serve the true and living God. And that's what Elijah wants. So, What do we learn from this spiritual conflict? Uh, The God of Israel versus Ahab and Asherah. Someone once said that um, contrast is the mother of clarity. You might say conflict is the mother of clarity. When you put two options side by side. So what do we see through this spiritual conflict in 1 Kings verse 17? There's three things I want to look at today. And the first is I want you to see in verses 8 to 10 the scandal of God's grace. Secondly, in verses 10 to 14, the challenge of God's command. And thirdly, the servant that God answers. That's in verses 19 to 20. So so let's see the scandal of God's grace. Have a look at verse 8. We're told that the wadi dried up. Now, what's a wadi? It's a strange term. It's a brook. A billabong. Exactly. I was just about to get there. You stole the words out of my mouth. This was Elijah's water source and it dried up. But God says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. But how? Have a look at verse 9. He says, go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, it may not seem like it, but this is absolutely shocking. Elijah would have been absolutely shocked. Did you pick up how Jesus talks about this very story in Luke chapter 4? And people were complaining about this, his ministry. Oh, he's just the guy's son. We know him. And he says to them, there were many Israel widows in Israel during the famine. But the Lord sent Elijah to none of them, none of the widows in Israel, but only to the widow of Zarephath, in Sidon. What happened when he said it? They were so angry. They were so incensed. 
They were so outraged. They were so offended that what did they do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. And I can guarantee you that if they were shocked and offended and horrified when they heard Jesus say this, then Elijah was as well. This is the scandal of God's grace. What's going on here? Why is this so shocking? Well, first of all, God says to Elijah, I am going to save you, but I'm going to send you out of Israel to do it. Uh, Friends, Sidon, where where Zarephath was, that is where Jezebel is from. Jezebel. This is what you call Pagansville. This is what you call Heathensburg. Sidon was the capital of paganism and idol worship. As far as the Israelites were concerned, these guys were socially and religiously bankrupt. Have you ever heard the term the deplorables? That's these guys. They are beyond the pale. And please note that God is sending Elijah there, not because God has something that he wants Elijah to do for them. No, he wants them to do something for Elijah. What on earth does Elijah have to learn from a bunch of deplorables, a bunch of pagans? Well, as a matter of fact, God wants to show Elijah nothing less than the way of salvation. Remember what Elijah's situation is. He's dying of thirst. He's starving to death. And the only one who can save him is what? A widow from Zarephath. In New Testament terms, this is what we call the foolishness of the cross. That the way of salvation is weakness, defeat, Humiliation. But it's even more shocking than that. Because not only does God send the most prestigious prophet to the most pagan province. But the person that God will use is first of all a woman and not a man. That sounds exactly right to us because of how much we've been influenced by the God of Israel and the stories of the Bible. But to them in a man's world this is absolutely shocking that this great prophet Elijah is going to be saved through A Gentile, a pagan, an idol worshipper, a woman. But not only is she a woman, what is she? A widow, which means she's dirt poor and she's got nothing to give. Why does God send the upright Elijah for his salvation to a racial outcast, a social outcast, a moral outcast, a gender and economic outcast? Why does he shatter all of the social, political and religious barriers that we put up in society? Well, let's think about it for a sec. The gods of all the other religions, whether secular or spiritual, they work like this. This is what the gods say. If you follow me, if you obey my commands, if you do what I say, then I'll bless you. And by the way, this is true whether it's the God of Baal or the God of beauty. This is true whether it's the God of Asherah or the God of academia. The rules are always the same. The gods say, if you sacrifice to me your time, your talent and your treasure, then I'll bless you. And if you don't, you're cursed. And so what happens is that you have insiders 
and outsiders. You have the people who follow the rules, who are blessed, whether it's the God of academia or the God of Asherah, and the people who don't, who are cursed. But that's not how the God of Israel works. Think about Elijah for a second. On those terms, Elijah is the ultimate insider, isn't he? He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And the widow is the ultimate outsider. But God says to Elijah, Elijah, that's the only way you can be saved. That's the only way you can be saved. The reason that people got so offended at Jesus is because he was saying to these upright Jews, you're worse than a Gentile. You're worse than a pagan. That's the only way you can be saved. It's like what Jesus once said. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, Elijah, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Elijah, if you think that's beneath you, then okay, you'll be humbled. But those who humble themselves, think Elijah, will be exalted. It's the only way in. This is the scandal of God's grace. And that's the first thing that we see in this story. I think one application here is to ask for help. Elijah asked for help. He needed help. When was the last time you asked for help? I find whenever I ask for help, it puts a massive dent in my pride. That's the scandal of God's grace. The next thing I want you to notice in this story is the challenge of God's command. Would you have a look at the end of verse 10 with me? Elijah says to the widow, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. Um, Elijah, I'm not sure if you noticed, but you've been praying that it wouldn't rain. And guess what? It hasn't rained. And guess what? This widow here is dying of thirst. But apparently she's up to the task. Because in verse 11, have a look. It says, as she was going to bring him some water. She's like, okay, I'll get you some water. But as she was going, he called to her and said, oh, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand while you're at it. Now, this is what you call the straw that broke the camel's back. Actually, it's a bit like another story when... Uh, the, the Apostle Peter, not the Apostle yet, uh, the fisherman Peter and his mates had, had been fishing all night without a single catch from fish. Now, now they had one, they were a one-trick horse, these guys. There's one thing that they were good at, really good at. What was it? Fishing. All night, hadn't catch, caught a single fish. And in the morning, after they'd finally given up for all their efforts, Jesus calls out from the shore and he says, Put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Peter said, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught a thing. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught a thing. Why does Jesus put his disciples through that kind of thing? Why does Elijah, this great prophet, put this poor widow through this kind of agony? I'll tell you why. It's it's because he's calling the widow to stake everything upon the word of God. Have a look. Verse 14. He doesn't say it without reason, without assurance. He says, for, that means the reason is, 
Thus says the Lord, not the God of Asherah or Baal, the God of Israel says, the jar of meal will not be emptied and the jug of oil will not fail. Literally in the Hebrew, the jug of oil will not run dry. Do you see what Elijah's doing? He's inviting this poor widow to gamble everything on the word of God. And that's what faith is. Taking God at his word. And look what happens when she does. Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. So that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And so for any of us who are feeling like God's command is too much and beyond us, then take note. Here's what you need to know. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you, where the arms of God cannot sustain you and where the riches of God cannot supply your every need. It's like Jesus' words to the rich man. First you must go and sell everything and then you'll have eternal life. This is the challenge of God's command. But now let's look finally at the servant God hears. Verses 19 to 22. The story now, there's a second story, is that the widow's son is dead. All hope is lost. One commentator says, this is the ultimate test of the Lord's authority. Remember, this is a conflict between Baal and the Lord. You see, it's one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death. But can he do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim whole? God might have authority in across the borders of Israel into Sidon, but does he have authority across the borders of life into death? Well, the widow's answer is no. He can't. But Elijah's answer is yes, he can. Let's have a look at the servant God hears. Firstly, please note that the servant God hears is the one who believes In the resurrection power of God. Look at the second half of verse 21. Elijah cried out to the Lord. O Lord my God. Let this child's life. This child is dead. He prays. Let this child's life come into him again. The servant God hears. Is the one who believes in the resurrection power. Of God. Who holds on to hope. When all hope. Is lost. Do you have any situations like that? Maybe, maybe it's just dead and buried. You moved on years ago. Elijah refuses to give up hope. He believes in the resurrection. Please note, secondly, that the servant God hears is the one who cries out to the Lord in faith. Two times, verse 20 and verse 21. Do you see there? He cried to the Lord. He cried out to God. This is not just a... Dear Lord, we pray. He cried out to the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis notes that the double references to Elijah's crying out to the Lord are very significant. Elijah, the great prophet, he doesn't work some holy abracadabra. He's not a religious magician. 
Remember what James says in James chapter 5? Elijah was a human being just like us. So what was it that set him apart? Well, James says so in the next few words. He prayed fervently. The literal phrase is praying while he prayed. Fervent means this. Fervently means having or displaying a passionate intensity. The servant God hears is the one who cries out, who prays fervently, who prays and prays. Thirdly, please note that the servant God hears is the one who loves deeply. In verse 21, it says, Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times. Well, it's not exactly clear what he's doing here, but I tend to agree with Warren Wearsby when he says, Elijah's posture indicated total identification with the boy and his need. And actually, this is an important factor when we intercede for others. He's identifying completely with the boy and his need. The motivation for prayer is always love. The more we love, the more we pray. In fact, the prophet Samuel, he once said to Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, he said, The Lord forbid that I should sin against him by no longer praying for you. When I look at Elijah's passionate praying here for the boy and his complete identification with the boy lying down three times, I can't help but see a glimpse of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's always interceding for us. And when he saw us dead in our sins, he identified with us so completely that not only he did not lie down three times, but he was laid down into the death that we deserve for three days. And then he was raised up through the mighty resurrection power of the Spirit for our salvation. So that the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 can say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So complete is his identification with us, symbolised through baptism, as we go down into his death and rise up into his life. And so the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 can say, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Friends, the servant God hears is the one who wants to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. It's just like Elijah said to Ahab in verse 1. Have have a look again in verse 1. Why does he address him like this? He says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. He's not dead. He's not an idol. He's not a figment of your imagination. He's the true and living God in our midst. Like the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. Jesus says, I'm the living one. I was dead and see, now I am alive forever and ever. And so the question for us is, do we believe it? And does it show? Do we believe that he's the true and living God and does it show? Are we as a community living out the scandal of God's grace? 
in our relationships with people who are so different from us? Are we as a community taking up the challenge of God's command to stake everything on the word of God and to show by experience in our lives the immeasurably great power he has for us who believe? And like Elijah prayed for the widow, are we praying more and more fervently in the face of death and darkness and despair that the mighty resurrection power of God will be brought to bear in situations that are hopeless so that we amongst all the others keep on holding holding on to hope when all hope is lost? Because friends, to the degree that we are that kind of people will be the degree to which people come and they visit us and they say to us what the woman says in verse 24 to Elijah. Now I know. Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God. Now I know that you are a woman of God. Now I know that you really are the people of the true and living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the scandal of your grace that breaks through all our barriers and rescues the least likely person in the room and causes such great offence to us in doing so. Please help us to respond fully to the challenge of your command, staking everything we have on the word of God. Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, even like you did, Elijah, teach us to pray fervently. He was a human being just like us. When everyone else has given up praying and has lost all hope that we might be the people of the resurrection. And Lord, we pray this so that When people come in and visit us, they say, wow, now I know that you are the people of God. Now I know that God is among you and you serve the true and living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.